Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, it cares Levert. It's cold. Levert. Back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday. Shot clock down to six. Finds one. Welcome to another edition of the Indy Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. And of course, read us over at Indy Cornrows. Caitlin Cooper wrote a really great uh, intro intro uh, coaching profile, I should say, on, on Terry Stotts and what that would look like for the Indiana Pacers. I really enjoyed reading that, uh, getting a, a, a better look at his X's and O's and, and an understanding of where he's coming at as a coach. Uh, and I think you should go check that out because she put a ton of time and effort into it. And of course, joining us today is Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. And yeah, thanks for talking about that article. That was a, I, I'm not going to turn those out super fast because I like to really take my time and, and dig into those, but you know, flare screens are fun. So flare screens are very fun. Go, go check that out, especially when they're connected to ball screens. So go check that out. Um, yeah, doing well, but I think this is going to be a very chuggy reference and maybe chuggy is even chuggy at this point. I was going to say chuggy. <laughs> I don't, I don't know that word. So you're going to have to explain that one to me. Uh, it's just like when stuff's old and outdated, I okay. guess. It's a it's some word that a person made up. It was in the New York Times. You'd have to go read it. But um, I think that we need the soundtrack to Skyfall for this podcast from James Bond. <laughs> I will. Uh, I'll put this that is in the, the end. Just this, me. Yeah. yeah, this is the end. Close your eyes and count to 10 more. <laughs> we've reached the end of this series and now we must talk about the centers. Yeah, this is going to be the most jam-packed uh controversial pot it's not gonna be controversial but um i mean maybe to some who knows so i'm sure we have a lot to dive into with this we have some questions we're going to get to at the end from from uh, listener submissions and we appreciate all those you guys have been awesome following along and of course that leads us into weird this is the one podcast series player reviews for the indiana pacers caitlin do you want to give people an intro if they have not listened to any of the pod uh, pod series before now and also to those people if you haven't go back and listen to the other ones as soon as you're done with this one because uh, we've, we've done a pretty good job with this in my humble opinion I think we have I think we have but um, the one is um, it's our twist on player review content at the end of the season we take each player every episode has three players today we're going to do the centers and we've each picked one play, one number, and one over under, and we're going to react to each other's picks. And that's just kind of how we're going to summarize those three player seasons. And today, instead of our long-winded bonus content, where we just ramble as if we're talking on the phone as friends, we're going to take your listener questions, as Mark mentioned, and do kind of a lightning round. So that's something to look forward to. But we'll still ramble like we're on the phone as friends, because <laughs> we are friends and we ramble. So, you know, that's part of the endearing part of the Indie Corners podcast. Um, well, yes, today, obviously, we're talking about Demonis Sabonis, Miles Turner, and Goga Batadze, uh, the three somehow most uh, controversial players for the Indiana Pacers. If you're if you're six eleven, uh, it's it's a bad day to be in Indiana. Apparently, um, Caitlin, I know I have Goga and Miles, and you have Domas. We want to start with Goga, and then we'll get to Miles and Domas at the back end. Not to uh, not to eschew Goga, but I think he's just in a little bit of a different stratosphere in terms of how we're going to be talking about these guys. Yes, let's lightly dip our toe into the center pool. I think that Goga is the easiest one to talk about. Yes. Um, 
I, I do have a lot of words to say about Goga, actually, because he, he he had a really interesting season to me in a lot of different ways, and, and we'll dive into it. So my one play, so we obviously have one play, one number, one over under. My play for Goga happened April 14th against the Los Angeles Clippers. We're not going to talk about that game, but we will talk about this play. Um, it's at 1038 in the second quarter. Reggie Jackson runs a pick and roll. As per usual, the Clippers uh, double the pick and roll. Goga shows and recovers, flashes back to the paint to, to get back on Patrick Patterson. Reggie Jackson swings the ball to Terrence Mann. Terrence Mann comes over from the right corner. Uh, I don't remember who's defending Terrence Mann on this play, but he completely blows by them, which is a, a staple of the Pacers' defense. And then uh, Terrence Mann tries to dunk over Goga. Gosh, I can't speak this morning. Tries to dunk over Goga. Goga has fantastic verticality um, and really just deters the, the shot from even being close to going in. And it sounds like a rudimentary play, but to me that was something that stood out about him this year was his defensive footwork. Because in his rookie year, if they'd asked him to hedge and recover and uh, try and get vertical on a shot, that's it's not happening uh, very often, or it's a foul, or he's just out of position. Um, I, I thought, too, even including like a play where – like I thought his footwork on closeouts was much better this year. He really struggled at the beginning of the year, but as the year went on, his footwork got a lot better on closeouts. And, um, you know, I think it's a lot of people, it, it's uh, it's different because like depending on the type of player you are and, and the way coaches want you to do it, they'll ask for different things on, on how you're attacking closeouts. But like Goga got really good at chopping his feet and not going flying out. And I, cause he had a big issue with that and, and, and fouling three point shooters early on in the year. Um, but that just showcased a lot for me. Like, okay, he's he's got the IQ. He knows what he's doing. He, he feels more comfortable on the floor defensively. He got really good at just being vertical this year. I think he uh, saying hunting blocks would be the wrong way to put it, but it felt like every time he went up, he was looking to, to block a shot because he wanted to have um, the biggest impact possible. But he got really good at just figuring out how to get vertical and, and deter shots instead of necessarily blocking everything. So um, that play for me encapsulated a lot of Goga's growth this year. Yeah, and just as like for listeners, we'll have these clips embedded into the article where this comes out so that mm -hmm. if you want to follow along, you'll be able to see it. But yeah, I think that Goga, I definitely feel better about his overall progress than I did a year ago. Like I've always liked his potential, but I think that you're correct towards the back end of the season, he wasn't getting knocked off the scent as much as you would have seen a year ago mm -hmm. where it didn't quite seem like he knew where he needed to be in drop coverage. And I think you make an astute point too with him out top that when you watched him play in Europe before he came over, if you watched his games, they ran a lot of zone, a lot of all switching and, and you'd see him defend up top more. And I thought, you know, without projecting that to NBA level speed, that he wasn't bad shuffling. And you could see that at times, like in the game in Orlando, I think I remember he switched out onto Terrence Ross and then, and did some hedging late in that game where he executed the coverage fairly well. Now what you said, I think you make another really good point when you say that uh, his verticality and making, you know, kind of loud plays at the rim are looking for the most impactful play. I think that kind of summarizes a lot of him as a player that when I'm noticing Goga, I'm noticing him like there's yeah. not a lot that he does good or bad that, you know, he doesn't so much fade into the background. He's either making really good plays <laughs> yeah. or like egregious errors, like because there's times too where I mean, and the Pacers as a whole kind of did this where when they were defending the pick and pop, 
sometimes if they were in a drop, they they would leave before they'd actually contained, and then there'd be like tension there to go out, and then they just let a person drive by. He had those kind of mistakes a couple times, and then I say that about him against Terrence Ross, and then he like got completely stood up by Tyler Hero in the one game against the Heat. All three bigs had some trouble, I thought, in the and the matchup against Charlotte late when Charlotte went small before Gordon Hayward came out of the game and got hurt. But yeah, I think there was positive strides for him defensively. I think he still needs to get stronger. And I think both of us have mentioned this before that he's got to cut back the fouling. He's got to yeah. cut back on some of the fouling, like the verticality, you can tell he's trying to work on, but sometimes he leans forward or brings his arms down and, and that's leading him to pick up fouls pretty quick. But I like your pick. Yeah, I felt I felt really good about that one. I think I'm a little bit, you know, instead of even I'm not going to give an issue to this one. My number is uh, my number is 33. And what the, what would you guess that is? Well, his three point percentage is lower <laughs> than that. Yeah, I was gonna say it's not that. Um, I think he played in more games than that. He did. I, I believe I he don't... played 48 this year. It was right around there. Is that how many putback attempts he had? No. So this is a very niche number that I did not expect you to get, but I like uh, I like upping the tension before we dive into something. He is 33rd in total minutes played in the 2019 draft class. Um, and that I, this is me being a little bit nitpicky, but just to give you an example, here are some guys who have played more minutes in, in two seasons than Goga has. Jalen McDaniels for the Hornets was a second-round pick. Chumo Kiki, who missed his entire rookie year with the Orlando Magic, played more minutes in entirety this year than Goga's played in his two years in the NBA. Nasir Little, uh, who was also, uh, I believe he was a late first round, but he has struggled to see time on the floor in Portland this year, and he still has played more minutes than Goga. And Grant Williams, who was in that same boat. Like, you can look up and down where guys were drafted. Uh, guys, obviously, ahead of Goga, playing guys behind Goga, who uh, have played more minutes than him and I think you do have to take it with a grain of salt obviously Goga had that foot injury so he missed a decent amount of time this year but even extrapolating it out like um, even if he doesn't miss those 10 or 15 games when he does have a foot injury he's pro- he's not really that much higher in terms of total minutes played and I think this is where it's going to be a very uh, big talking point this entire episode but like I was talking about this with uh, with Tony East host of Locked On um yesterday and it's just when the goga pick happened it was a little bit confusing you understand best player available and picking the best player available but then it's been two years now and goga really hasn't gotten the full opportunity to be backup center and the only reason he got that opportunity this year is because of how much miles was hurt um and so i wonder too like if miles doesn't get hurt how much lower on that list is goga and to me, drafting somebody 18th overall, if they're not going to end up playing like that that many minutes, it's it's a little bit vexing. And I think it's been uh, a little bit, not a little bit, it's definitely been frustrating to me, especially at the beginning of the year. Like you and I talked about how he just wasn't seeing the floor at all. And that was wild. And that changed up quickly for the most part. But it just, it, it's been a recurring theme that Goga hasn't been getting a ton of playing time. And he needs the the like real tangible minutes to try and develop and, and feel his way through the game. And um, it just brings up a lot of questions for me on, on what that means moving forward, especially as it pertains to looking at your bonus, talking about them later on. Yeah. 
when that pick happened, I mean, my initial reaction was they said it was the best player available. And they said that I, I remember this quote, I'd have to go back and find it. This is me paraphrasing it. And this was obviously still when Dan Burke, the Dan Burke system, Nate McMillan system was in place that they're like, you know, he can block shots and that's the most important thing to setting our defense. And then when the season started, like it was Miles and Victor at the podium giving questions. So I kind of leaned and, you know, Sabonis was still in negotiations for his extension. So I kind of thought, well, maybe at some point they think they're going to move Sabonis if that's what they think the most important thing to setting defense is. And Goga gives them, a low cost option to be able to flip one of the bigs and get assets back. Like it seemed like maybe that was the long-term play there. And, and if you think that that person's the most skilled and you can flip somebody else, then that's what you do. Or even later on, if they were going to, you know, even trade Goga. But I think when you look at it from a coaching standpoint, there was reasons to be staggering miles and Sabonis. None of, I mean, including that, just getting them each more opportunities and how they were performing, especially in this particular system, that it was going to be harder to just throw Goga out there as the backup five. Mm -hmm. And I was frustrated some in the bubble last year that he didn't get to play, but as it turns out, he was dealing with knee injuries. So I don't think you can hold that too much against Nate McMillan without knowing how he felt in his body. But yeah, the minutes haven't consistently been there for him, but also like, and you know, you have to ride the highs and lows development isn't linear mm -hmm. at any point in time. But one thing that I did notice this year is that, I mean, and this is the case across the board, like he didn't do near as much in the pick and roll this year as he did under McMillan and his screening still has so much work to do. Like he does a good job when it's in handoffs, making contact when the person's coming at him or in certain plays, but when they're getting side to side movement, off of the weave action. He almost always is way over eager to dive. And there's a few other settings where he doesn't actually make contact. And then that makes it harder for the guards. Like the game they played in San Antonio, they are not in San Antonio against San Antonio at home. That was one of their lowest conversion rates at the basket. And that's not all because of him later on in the game, he ended up spraining his ankle himself. And, and that was a lot of games in a short amount of time. And the other people were out, but you can see that impact. And like, even in the game late that they played against Cleveland, like if you want to know what Goga needs to improve on, like I would encourage anybody to go look at that game in Cleveland and click like the nine minutes because, or watch those nine or 10 minutes that he played, because it was like everything encapsulated. Like he went around on the weave and in the stagger set and somehow managed to not make contact on any of the picks. He was a trailer two or three times, which is that's mainly how he got his threes with his mega team in Europe. Like he mainly was used in spot up situations on his trailer. It wasn't necessarily out of the pick and pop. He got an unnecessary foul on an offensive rebound and then uh, got caught, got cross matched in transition and gave up a dunk defending on the perimeter. And then also didn't seem to know what play they were running when they were running the little mini weave on the side with TJ McConnell. So like, I can understand sometimes where Bjorken would have been like, okay, you know, we're trying to win games. That's the goal of the season. And he came out in his first stint and was really struggling. So in order for him to, you know, earn minutes, I'm not going to give him the second stint in the second half, but that's just the conflict of, you know, what was the goal of this season through all the injuries and having two people ahead of him in the rotation. But back to my point about the pick and roll, like almost all of his shots this season were either threes or off of offensive rebounds, like 60% of his shots were that. And I think that he did improve, like carving out space on the glass, he got better at, mm -hmm. but 
Um, I think he needs more reps in the pick and roll to really kind of perfect that ballet. And that wasn't really happening in the minutes when he was out on the floor, which again, I think is give or take, if you're not a good screener, sometimes people were rejecting his screens and just driving right into the action. So there's that half of it, but also in order to be able to do more things when he's on the floor, he needs to be able to get practice at that though. I do think that he definitely showed growth overall Oh yeah, totally. and dribble handoffs in, in the specific sense that if that got overplayed, he got better at using get actions and counters and more of like a diluted Sabonis way. Like you could see that he was getting more comfortable with that, but I mean, it, it's just not an ideal dynamic having three people on the team who are six foot 11, because I mean, let's face it, you don't really need to constantly be playing with two of them on the floor, which is what it more or less would have taken for Goga to have a full backup role. And they were already struggling enough to be guarding, you know, quicker fours and wings as it was. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a lot less about uh, Nate Bjorken or Nate McMillan and a lot more about just roster construction um, and the vision of the team moving forward. So, yeah, it is a, it's just not an ideal situation for Goga, not an ideal situation for the Pacers, and it's something that needs to be ironed out, honestly. And, uh, you know, maybe this, this offseason is the one that happens, but also it might not be. So uh, we'll be talking more about that in a minute. But my over-under for Goga is 33. Is that the over-under? Is that the line for how many um... – Shut the F's up are happening next year. <laughs> if he hit 33, oh my God. Um, it happens once every other game. Wow. That would be exciting. Um, he would challenge DeMarcus Cousins uh, for the uh, the tech leading. Because uh, well, I can't remember what year it was that DeMarcus Cousins led. The, I mean, he led the league in techs multiple times. But there was one year where he was just so over. I think he was getting a tech like every other game or something like that. Um Goga would take that by a mile. Wow. Um, no, that is three-point percentage next year. And it's a little bit finicky, obviously. But, like, I mean, part of it's just because roll. I do think roll, uh, like, and just overall minutes and reps has an impact. And, like, okay, well, how big is the sample size really? But um, uh, what? how would you view that? Would you take the over or the under? Well, he shot, I think, 25% this year, I yeah. think. Yeah. Um. The one thing that's interesting with Goga is to give credit to Nate Bjorkren. I actually thought that the set that they run where they, they go screen on one side and TJ McConnell will drive baseline. And then they get the 45 cut that forces the defense to have to commit. And then he's getting a wide open three on the wing. That's where the majority of his threes were coming from. And those are wide open, just set shots. And that's the way he was getting shots. Not that specific play, but like I said earlier, that's the way he was getting threes in Europe and he shot the ball. Well, albeit on limited Sam sample size over there. So it's a little weird to me that it's not falling for him at a better clip yet because his stroke looks fine to me. Like I'm not a shot doctor, but mechanically it doesn't look like he has a major issue there. And he let the ball go. Like he wasn't really thinking about it either. Like he didn't record scratch out of many of those attempts. Like if he got the ball and he was open, he was putting it up until the back end of the year, I started noticing there was a little bit more hesitancy there once he had had, been missing but um i'd like to think i mean he talked about in his exit interview that he knows that he believes that he can shoot the ball well and that it hasn't shown in his percentage and he wants to work on that and said you know i need to work on everything i'm still really young so i like to believe that he could get that up higher but i would need to know who the coach is going to be how he's going to be getting some of those shots because to me he should have had success this year 
hitting some of those, but his role, I mean, it wasn't like he was out there to consistently get a rhythm. The one thing that does encourage me is I think that he hit pretty decently when he was out there solidly for the Mad Ants in the few games that he played. Like, Mm -hmm. and that was what was weird too. When he played for Fort Wayne, he just had, and again, this is going to sound very talk radio, but he just played with a lot more aggressiveness and force and, and looked more confident in those games a year ago than what he was looking in games for the Pacers. But I think I still want to lean the under just because he hasn't shown proof of product yet. Oh. I mean, and that's Miles was at 33% this year, I believe. So, yeah, I'm okay. Maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I'm going to take the over um, for a lot of the reasons you mentioned, but I think just more of a different look at it. Like he has the best, best jump shot out of either Miles or Domas by, uh, I would say, a significant margin. He's just a lot more comfortable taking it. Um, He's going to let it fly. The base is really good. I like his release. Again, I'm not a shot doctor either. I think I've learned a lot more about it recently in trying to do some draft stuff. But um, I think I look at the – and, again, it's hard to I, – I, have, I, I haven't been criticized, but I've certainly been called out for looking at certain sample sizes. Um, this is not just about me trying to fit a narrative. It's more of like I look at this like, okay, when Goga really did have that consistent role um, – unfortunately with miles out but there was a i think it was a 15 game stretch when goga was playing double digit plus and i think 23 out of the 25 games he shot 35 percent from three on two per game i was like yeah that sounds about right like i i um it's again small sample size but in that in that stretch he's getting consistent minutes he knows he's going to play every night um and he's getting real opportunities it's not just a one and done um He's not just coming in for the last 10 seconds of the second half to play again of, of the first half to play against Orlando. Um, God, that was vexing. But uh, yeah, I mean, point being, I do think uh, I, I'm going to take the over on that one. I hope you're right, Mark. I hope you're right. I, I truthfully so do. It would be really good for him in opening up his game, but we will see. Do you have anything else you want to hit on on Goga before we, uh, we move on? I think that there's some listener questions later related to Goga that we can yeah, we can touch good. then. Cool. Sounds good. All right. So I guess it is time to talk about Domas. Oh, yay. <laughs> and this is what's so sad. Like, Miles and Sabonis are both so good, and it's like I just almost dread talking about them. Yeah. But, um, okay. So there's a lot of ways that I could go here. And a lot of people have asked questions about the defense, and I kind of feel like, depending upon where this summer goes, that that's something that would need um, a lot more coverage and a lot more words from me. But I, yeah. I've been leaning mostly with a lot of my picks. Isn't so much like a highlight or you know something that somebody's necessarily doing well, as in what I think it needs to be next for them, or maybe in the context of what the season was. So I take us to, um, I believe this is the third game against Charlotte. And the lineup is TJ McConnell, Karras, Justin, Sabonis, and Doug. And this is a play that Nate Bjorkren runs for Sabonis to get a post-touch. Like, that is the specific purpose of it. The Raptors ran it the same exact action, only it was to get uh, 
Pascal Siakam a lob or sometimes a post touch as well. So on the left side of the floor, they set up like they're going to run a UCLA cut, which a UCLA cut, everybody probably knows, but just in case you don't, you're going to pass the ball off to the wing and then you're going to cut off of a brush screen at the elbow. So it looks like that what that's what they're going to do. But the play is actually to reject that. It's a, it's a fake action. They fire it to the opposite side of the floor and Doug sets effectively a diagonal screen for Sabonis to dive to the left block or the right block. I'm sorry. Now the goal of that's to get a switch, but teams more and more this year, when you watch them did not want to switch against Sabonis because they don't want to send a double team because the Pacers got good offense, especially towards the back end of the season. They were efficient when Sabonis was getting doubled. His passes out of the post were efficient offense. So they'd rather guard that one-on-one with the big. So in this case, Cody Zeller's defending him in the post he gets the ball out a little bit further from the basket, probably around 10 feet, and he faces up and shoots and misses the shot. Now, I've combined two clips that I wanted to share, and I cheated. I apologize, America or world or wherever you're listening from, because I also wanted to look at this one against Phoenix where Aiton is just defending him straight up when they're in Phoenix, and he backs the ball out, and the other four people are standing stagnantly watching as he backs the ball out and he does a few crossovers which this is usually my tell of like oh no what's going to happen here he's 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 dribbled and faced the guy up a few times and now then he turns over his shoulder and shoot tries to shoot a mid-ranger off the glass and misses the shot Mm -hmm. so on the one hand Sabonis added this year that that turnaround look as well as the ability to get into the middle of the lane and create space for himself with the one-legged jumper the problem is, is while he added the skill, he wasn't super efficient at doing either one. Um, there was a precipitous drop in his percentage from mid-range compared to last year, especially the long mid-range, where I'm not suggesting that you need to be generating a lot of long mid-range shots for him, obviously, but there was like a 10% decrease there. And when you look, a lot of the mid-range shots that he got because of how the Pacers offense was centered – he would get more out of the pick and pop last year under Nate McMillan because Nate McMillan was fine with he or miles popping to that location. Whereas now they eliminated most of the mid range shots out of the pick and pop. So the ones that he were get, he was getting was mainly in that situation where he's facing up. Now there's like three things to look at there. First of all, those are set plays. That's not an ad lib. Like that's literally Nate Bjorken calling UCLA reject for Sabonis and he's executing the set. Secondly, like we know that Sabonis is very good at facilitating offense out of the post. The percentage of, I mean, he even increased his percentage passing out of the post this year and they scored over a point per possession when he hit cutters or shooters. So I don't really know why certain games we went through these stretches where there's just four people dotting the perimeter and watching that. Like, especially if it's against single coverage, you got to implement split cuts if he's not going to have a physical advantage against people. I mean, cuts are a great uh, mode of offense, which we'll get into this with some of the other listener questions later. But my long-winded point with this is for Sabonis, he needs to get better at hitting that shot. And if TJ Warren and other people are healthy, he's not probably, you're not going to be looking at that as much because you're going to have more people who can create and score. But for him, you, I think you want people to double him 
because that yeah. helps the rest of the team for him to get doubled in that situation, similar to what you've seen with Embiid Embiid really improved his ability to look his guy in the face and be able to put the ball on the floor to be able to hit that shot. And now people are doubling him and Embiid seeing the double team coming, which Embiid is not the passer that Sabonis is in these situations, but that helped clarify his passing in the case of Sabonis, that's just going to make his passing more lethal. So I think for me, even more like the three point shooting, I think he was at like 32% this year. He mixed some of that in like that's just free points if he can hit a three great but that's not really going to reshape the defense like if, if he's hitting threes it's just going to be because somebody left him wide open and for me it's kind of like when you watch Giannis putting up threes like if he hits one I guess okay but I think that there's things that you could be doing that's actually shifting the defense more than like and I don't want to even want to use the word analytics approach because analytics should not be equated solely with three pointers but I think this in particular would be another way that if he can demonstrate proof of product with some of these skills that he clearly did work on and be hitting them more efficiently, that you actually are shifting the pieces on the floor. And like with the article that I wrote about Terry Stotts, if you look at some of the mover blocker stuff they run and he were to be the coach, if you don't get something out of some of those options, the either the pin down screener normally can flip that around. I mean, you can even see this with the Clippers. The Clippers have been running some mover blocker and then you're getting Marcus Morris into that, that area about 15 feet out and he'll turn and hit a turnaround jump shot against the guy. If that's a bonus, I think that that helps push things along. So that's one of my long list of things that I think that he needs to improve at. This was such a Fantastic point. This is exactly what I would have brought up to if I had uh, if I had Domas. Um, and I think, again, as per usual, I'm putting a positive spin on it um, and not saying that you weren't. But I just like I look at this and uh, I think it's I used to be very much not uh, in on on Domas and what he was doing as a player, because, frankly, I didn't understand basketball as well as I, I think I needed to. And I, I mean, frankly, nobody does. Everybody's still learning. And I, I don't ever want to come off like some basketball elitist or something. Um, but like looking at Domas, like I think people see how many points he scores per game. He scored over 20 points per game this year. Um, and they're like, oh, well, he's he's a scorer. He, he's a finished product there. And, and I think there's this general tendency to just be like, oh, well, you know, what is he going to add to his game next? Can he add anything to his game next? And I, I don't like that thinking because number one, let's just remember Demonis bonus is 25. Um, like he just turned 25 this year. Uh, and I wouldn't categorize him as an awesome scorer yet. Like he has a, an array of moves that help him be a good uh, ancillary scorer. Like he's good at scoring off of somebody else's uh, gravity. Fantastic as a role man um, has really good post footwork. But like you're mentioning, he doesn't have his own go-to move yet. And I think we saw him really try and workshop that, for, for lack of a better term, that Dirk fadeaway um, from mid-range. And it was it was really hit and miss this year. There were some stretches where it looked really good, others where it didn't fall as well. But that was encouraging to me because he needs that. He really needs that go-to ability. Like that. Like if, if the shot clock's winding down and he has the ball with seven or eight seconds left, like – he needs to be able to get to that. And I think that's what one of the things where I got a little bit frustrated with the three-point shooting this year because everyone's like, oh, well, uh, every, oh, I mean, of course, people get really torn and conflicted on it. But it's exactly like you're saying. Like, that's not bending the defense at all. Even if he does hit it at a respectable rate, it, it matters a lot more if he's in the paint and can force those double teams because then he can use the scoring gravity to beat people because, like – He's not out there to be a scorer. Like, I mean, he's capable of scoring, of course. I don't mean it like that, but it's more like, I mean, he talked about it in his exit interview. Like, we were talking about this before we got on. 
he wants to he wants to get open open people shots like he wants to get more efficient looks for his teammates and he's capable of doing it and the easiest way to do that is to to get double team um so i totally agree with you like that's something i'm really interested to see how that plays out next year because that's so important for his game moving forward and also why i i I just uh i'm not trying to sound like a, a sabonis apologist or anything i think both you and i try and come at this from a more um observational standpoint and trying to be fair to both him and miles but I think the biggest thing is just like I, I I know you and I have both been labeled as Sabonis supporters or whatever, and it's more just like no, we have to be realistic about each guy. Like this guy's not a finished product, and he's fantastic already. He's an All Star caliber player, deservingly. Depending, you know, some people view things differently, but I would say deservingly an All Star player, and he still has a lot of room to add to his game. Um, so yeah, I uh, sorry that was a really long extended monologue, but I I, I really like that point you brought up, Kalen. Well, and the other thing about it is, is it, it, it's not even necessarily like, I mean, his numbers in isolation were good this year. I mean, but I think he has some self-recognition. I mean, he talked about things they asked him, what do you want to improve on? And he said, my late game, my late creation in the post, like when a late double team comes and you don't, like if, if, if they're going to soft trap him, you're not going to have the same passing angles there. So he's talked about wanting to navigate that, which you could see some of that. That's kind of more what Nick Nurse did in that particular game where they were practically running like a box with four defenders around him, but they weren't running it tight. So he didn't quite have the passing angles um, wanting to get better at his jump shot. He mentioned that. And uh, also that he recognizes that there's things he needs to get better at defensively as well. And that he sits down every summer and watches film and, he thinks that he showed some development in that. I mean, you saw development with him on ball. I mean, he wasn't doing what they were doing with pitch plays, like what Siakam does a year ago. Like that, that was new. Them running inverted pick and roll at the elbow was not something that Nate McMillan did with him. And I think that that's another way that you're going to more creatively get, like if somebody's in a drop coverage and you can go out there and set a back screen guy on that guy and, and Sabonis can put the ball on the floor and draw coverage and make a pass from there that's going to be more effective than thinking that Sabonis are really most bigs, unless your name's Jokic or Carl Anthony Towns and maybe Vucevic are going to pull a big out into space and respect that shot. Even if he is hitting it, that's generally what the defense is going to be willing to give up, especially with regards to Sabonis. But yeah, I mean, he had a quote where he, he directly said, I want to pass first. I love to pass first with regards to, to cutting. And that's another piece of this. Like it took them about, Oh, around the time they played Boston to really start incorporating like the punch that you can see in the article about Stotts, Portland ran the same one to start running that play to run the top pin where miles gets a three out of it, out of the post or whoever, sometimes that would be Justin um, that the Raptors ran and it, it is running other split cuts around him. Like it took too long to get to that. And by the time that they did, they weren't always consistent with the actual cutting. Like they led the league in motion on offense, but there were games where they would really do it like in Miami. And then there were games where you're seeing it like this with Phoenix, four guys standing there stagnantly while he's trying to, you know, barrel through or, or hit a jump shot over a guy on the left side, isn't doing anything for anybody, him or them. Like if he can start hitting the shot, then that's different. But I think there needs to be movement, but yeah, I mean, he said, if I can get my guys open and get them easy points, I enjoy that more than scoring. So, I mean, just some stats on his overall, like passing, he passed on 77.5% of his touches this year. That's more than any other starter and any person on the team, other than TJ McConnell, who we very much know 
is pass first. Um, he passed on 33% of his post-up possessions, which was up from the in the 20s where it was a year ago. And then per cleaning the glass, he was in the 96th percentile in assist to usage ratio in the NBA. So, I mean, he's not a black hole. And these aren't sets where, like I said, these aren't sets where he's just ad-libbing. Like, that's, that's what they're calling. And I think another piece that the two of us have talked about is, like, this is why Karras makes a big difference because when he comes back out there and plays, you are able to do more with Karras on the perimeter, more drive and kick and whatever. For like two months straight, you're starting Doug and Justin and Miles with Brogdon. People are ducking under on Brogdon. Like who else was going to be creating or facilitating? I mean, maybe that's just me being naive, but I think that they were getting more once Karras came back in terms of him on the roll him even just being in the dunker spot or, or other things where you could get like a, a give and go with Karras and having both him and Brogdon switches that dynamic. If TJ Warren was healthy, it switches it as well. Like maybe you do redistribute things, but I think he's shown himself, I mean, to be a good enough facilitator that I don't think that any coach they hire is going to be like, you know, we're going to stop running elbow sets and, and having him wheel up top. And if they did, I would really question why they were keeping him. Yeah. No, I agree. They're just, there's, uh, I think, I mean, you and I have both talked about it at length this season. We're doing it more today, but I just think the general um, perception of Domas has been skewed. Maybe sounds like the wrong way to put it, but I don't know. I mean, I think people like, will just like pull out the, uh, the touches number instead of looking at, okay, well, how much is he passing out of that? Like, what about the length of the touches? Like, that's an important thing too. It's more of a, it's not Domas just sitting there holding the ball after he gets it. Like he's a post hub, literally. Like that's that's what it's about. You know, like um, anytime he's getting the ball, like there are so many times. If you're looking at a DHO, I look at it almost like a, it's it sounds like a odd analogy, but he's almost like a door hinge in some ways. Like in opening up uh, more opportunities for drivers on the team because they don't have the most bursty drivers or so guys with the best handles. So. Um, his screening and his ability to just swing the ball and, and find little touch passes here and there. I mean, that just gives you a little bit more spacing, a little bit more burst, a little bit more boost than you had uh, without him. Like there's just, there's so much more to his game. Well, than... And exactly what you're pointing out, like you're having him as a connector up top, they run, I mean, and they ran these plays with Goga and miles on occasion, but like, if you're running the little chase action with the one that I said with TJ McConnell, that's going to get the big, three touches and if they overplay it then it's going to be a get to get the ball back to the perimeter guy to attack that that none of that is going to be derived you know shots for Sabonis or whoever it's doing but it's going to get them four touches they run that game that play multiple times a game so you're going to be racking up more touches just by virtue of that like I'm not going to say like I'm not going to say that he never forced up shots in the paint that happened but I don't think it happened on the level that the perception of it is, I mean, just like that stat alone, he passed on a higher percentage of his touches than anybody else that was a starter. And some of that makes sense. I don't need a lot of those guys making plays. I would rather they be play finishers, but I go back to the why, you know, why was that happening? And a lot of times if they did, if it did get to a point where it was a quote unquote ad lib, in my opinion, it got there because there's a play breakdown and who else are you going to throw the ball to, to get you to the next thing? And that's generally what I see as his biggest strength, his ability to get the team to the next thing. But this plays into my number, which is 18.5. And that was his roll frequency this year, down from over 30 last year. So, 
yeah, his post-ups were up, but again, it's like, what was the cause for that? Because I'm telling you that they did not have a compendium of post-up plays. Um, they had three or four, like what I would refer to, they're not even necessarily split cuts, but that was if, you know, he ends up in the post and it's single coverage and what are we going to do about it? And then this, these ones that I showed in addition to like, you know, Doug sets a back screen, but sometimes the back screen was part of Spain or whatever to get that shooter out on the perimeter. So, and, you know, we talked about this on the Karis Brogdon pod, I think running more of the pick and rolls in the middle of the floor, whether this is Miles, Sabonis, Goga, whoever, would get those guys stuff on the roll. Because I'm just remembering the games that they played against Denver a year ago where they won the game in Denver. I thought that was one of their better wins of the year. They were running a lot out of the middle of the floor against and getting Sabonis on the move against Denver's blitzing. And he was just finding Doug in the corner, finding shooters in the corner and keeping his head on a swivel. And I don't want to completely go back to that because I think that the things Bjorkren added in terms of, you know, weak side movement and making sure that shooters weren't just statically placed, kind of like what I'm saying about these post-ups is good for the overall health of the offense. But I think in general that they could stand to up the numbers specifically of Sabonis on the roll, but also even like what I mentioned with Goga and with miles that you're getting more of that, which, you know, Terry Stotts and the Blazers were the most efficient pick and roll offense last year they ran a lot of pick and roll not in terms of volume but they ran very well and that's just that's some of that's dame's brilliance but they ran it a lot and i think that they could stand to get back to a little bit of that yeah no i would agree with that it's uh i i didn't realize the numbers were that drastic but i like that's something you notice throughout the year the um you know he you, you didn't see him getting out on the roll as much and especially too like you're just mentioning the short roll passing is so good from him um, and the role gravity is, is for real. And I would like to see that more. So yeah, that's something I, I hope to see change up for next year. And some of that's a product of the defense. I mean, like yeah. I said, if you have, you know, mostly spot up guys out there and people are ducking under on Brogdon, then you, you're going to have to have a little bit more creativity in how you're combating those unders. And, and sometimes they weren't super patient with the rescreens in the way they were a year ago. But I do think my over under does not have to do with this, but I do think we need to talk about the defense. Like I, I would go yeah. into more detail about this later, but in my opinion, I think that both sides need to carry some of the fault here. Like I, I do not think that the Bjorken system was kind to him at the four or the five. I don't think it was a fit at all. Like I don't think expecting him to help and fly up top at the four spot is something that's going to be successful. And at the five, you know, I don't think that funneling the league's highest uh, rim frequency is going to be something that's that's going to work with him either. And they led the league in motion on both ends of the floor. So he's doing that. Plus, you're expecting him to play physical. You're expecting him to facilitate. Sometimes he's playing on the ball. He was playing big minutes through the first portion of the season. I looked up this morning. He almost played more 40-minute games through the end of January than he did all of the prior season. So I think that that led to some draining for him on defense, but also like there's just improvements that he individually needs to make. There has to be some accountability there. Um, He's not as adaptable. His shuffling is not as good. He's better as a dropper. And yet there towards the back end of the season, like overall, just team wide, the effort wasn't as good. He doesn't always make resistance when he's a dropper. He can just kind of backpedal though I do think he had some games where he was better at that but I think the main thing for me with him defensively is I think he needs to do a lot of agility training this summer so that he can get to a place where 
if they needed to play, you know, if you're playing someone like Damian Lillard or Luca or whatever, that he would be able to play higher and, and take a few steps out to be able to deter that person from the rim because he's been a little bit more in those situations. I would compare him to like Zubots with the Clippers. Like he makes it too easy for the person to turn the corner. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if you were leaning towards playing Sabonis at the five, you would pretty radically revamp what you were doing defensively specifically this season but i will say that like he played he played over 36 minutes per game the year prior and the Pacers were a top six defense now he definitely benefits from having miles out there protecting the rim but there was not this massive on-off shift and this is no we'll get into this with miles later this is not remotely a knock on miles but the defense didn't fall off a cliff if you look at the on-off splits just for miles in the prior year and now there's like a five-point drop and in some of the games that miles didn't play i mean we've talked about this ad nauseum but they just got they got too cute with some of the zone coverages and it was incredibly half-baked that like in the games they played against Dallas and the Clippers where they didn't know what they were doing and they really didn't have the background personnel to be blitzing, but for him himself, and I'm not saying I would go to a blitzing scheme full on because I definitely wouldn't, but he needs to work on the hip flexibility and the agility to be doing more of the things that they would need him to do defensively, as well as just, um, you know, he's going to have to work on the overall energy stores if he's going to be expected, which I don't think he's going to be expected to carry a load as heavy as he did this year once the rest of the roster is healthy. But um, those are the main things I would look at. But I, I don't think we can look at not talking about what his defense was this year, because even without the system, I don't think he had an overall good defensive sis- season. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Um, it's. Uh, yeah, it's hard to talk about the defense in some ways, because I do think like just the way that things that get pointed out aren't necessarily um, fair is maybe the wrong way to put it. But um, I mean, like we've talked about this and you helped me understand it a lot better. Like I, I don't necessarily agree that he was getting blown by at the point of attack a ton. It was more of like, you're talking about like um, some of the uh, um, positioning could be a lot better. He's obviously not the most laterally quick guy and the effort could have been a lot better too down the stretch of the year, but that's again, the whole team. But the thing is just more like, um, you know, when there were things that, that got open at the basket, a lot of times it's because, okay, well, nobody's making the backside rotation and it's more of a team thing. But I do agree entirely. Like um, the defense just has to be better overall. And there ha- being put in a better position will help. Um, but yeah, him finding more ways to get towards being a neutral impact defender is going to be huge for him moving forward. And that's how I would have categorized him a year ago. Yeah. Like, was, I didn't I notice. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, ago. I thought he was mostly fine. Like, I don't, I'm not going to be like, you know, clipping a bunch of wow plays on that end of the floor though. I do think like, I think he averaged like over a steal per game this year. Yeah. So, that was the one nice part. Like I yeah, really so, thought his hands over the back end of the season really improved um, at the level. Um, but some of that came like some of the gambling came with a little bit of, you know, giving up a couple of things, but his, his hands really did improve. Yeah. And some of that was a product of, we want to press up on people and maybe he deflects it while he's like 30 feet from the basket. Like, you know, there's just no reason in the world why he led the entire NBA in distance travel, even when accounting for, and this is another thing on top of the entire workload, they're playing at one of the fastest paces in the NBA. Like you're expecting him to play at one of the fastest paces, be having all of this motion on both ends of the court. Like that's not realistic for him to continue doing all of that so something's gonna have to give but um i would say that you know 
we've said this before, but for me, and we'll get into it, I'm sure, in the listener questions. But for me, if I'm the front office heading into this summer, I'm either going to be fully behind Miles and Sabonis and being excited about it and why this can work. And more so than I think they've been, you know, team-wide, even from the coaching standpoint as well, it's always seemed kind of like, well, this is a thing that we're doing because we have these two really good players and, you know, we kind of hope it can work. Like, that's not a quote, obviously, but that's the impression I've been left with. Like, if that's what you're going to do, then do it. And otherwise, if you're not, you need to have a really, um, I think, a plan of which one of these two you're leaning towards. Because it was not helpful halfway through the year to be running a system, like I said, where you're going to funnel everything. I mean, you can tell that by the stances that they use at the nail everywhere. The goal is to funnel that action into the paint. And then to have Miles removed from that and think that some bonus was going to be successful in that situation. I just, I don't think that's going to happen. So, um I hope that there's a plan in that regard, but my over under is 39, which is his combined points, rebounds and assists from this year. Um, Last year, that was about 35 with TJ healthy and obviously starting Jeremy and then Victor coming back. And the month of May, it was 46 when he and Karis were really operating things. Him and Karis were like their numbers in like part of that. I do want to point out like, and I'm sure you were getting their pace. Like the pace was absurd and I don't think that's sustainable, but the numbers were insane for both of them. Yeah. Pace was a big factor. And also like, I don't know how you feel about this, but I felt like there was a lot of games and not just the back end of the season, but kind of the whole season with the exception of like the top teams in the Eastern conference where I didn't feel like teams were giving their the Pacers their best shot. Like, yeah. again, that's very talk radio, but I, I I would watch games like, for instance, the one they played in San Antonio. I was just like, this might be the worst game the Spurs have played all year. Yeah. So, I mean, some of that's a factor, but um, I guess, yeah, the line is at 39 and you, you can take the over under and based on whether you, you know, do you think it should be over 39, under 39, back to 35 where it was, you know, any commentary you want to add there? Oh, wow. Um, well, let me pull up his basketball reference right now because I want to make sure that I put enough thought into this. So he was this year was just about 40, right? Um so wow, this is a good question. Um I think I'm going to go with the under just because my hope is that like I mean I do think legitimately like his maybe his points per game go up or something. Like that's possible if he adds in some of the stuff that we talked about earlier on. But I just think, like, for his sake, I don't want him to have to be playing that much. Like, I don't yeah. think that it's necessary. I think his to... minutes are better off at or under 35. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would argue that's for just about anybody in the league. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm going to take the under just because with the whole roster back, theoretically, because um, as we've learned in Pacers land, that is very theoretical. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to take the under on that. Yeah, I mean, it depends on where his development goes. And and again, the coaching staff, I I don't think the 35 was, you know, a bad mark to be at a year ago. And I think overall, I mean, both of us have said it, I think you're in a better place as a team when his assist numbers, you know, are, are about where they were over the back end, like when he's getting people involved. Mm-hmm. And I guess my overall take is just the same of what I said earlier. Like if that's not the way that you're going to use him, and I would say that I think most of the coaches they interviewed a year ago, um, based on playbooks that I saw, 
that's how you're going to use him. And if you're not, like, if he's just going to be kind of like in the Goga role of he's just, I mean, you could, you could theoretically do what you did in some respects with Goga. You're going to stand in the dunker spot and you're going to run around and set screens for other people. And and that's what you're going to do. Like, if that's what you're going to do in order to get other people more touches, then I don't think that's fully taking advantage of what he offers you. And at that point, I would think, you know, to answer the question I didn't want to answer at that point, if that's what the plan is, then you should trade him because you're not going to be taking advantage of what his skill set is. So that's where I would lean. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like, if you're not going to find a way to uh, like, that's part of the issue. Like, if you look at him and Miles, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, but like having two guys with uh, semi overlapping skill sets or more, I should say it's harder to get both of them going if you have them playing together at the same time, like not fully leaning into what one guy can do makes it harder uh, just overall to get the most out of both guys. So I'm uh, I'm right there with you. Like if you're not going to find a way to fully actualize somebody and you're just kind of um, for lack of a better term, holding them back, then yeah, uh, find a way to trade them because you're, you're doing them a disservice and doing your team a disservice by uh, not finding a way to really fully involve them. Um but on to Miles. I'm excited to see what you have for Miles. Yeah, this is a really happy podcast. Um, Miles Turner. Yeah. My one play is something really small that I think most people would be like, why is that your one play? I thought about the uh, the play with, um, you know, against Miami where he double blocks Tyler Hero because that is a really fun That's play. hilarious. That's one of my favorite moments of the season. <laughs> yeah, um, that was that was awesome. But we talked about that play ad nauseum, so I am not using that play, actually. Uh, my play is from April 4th against the San Antonio Spurs in the third quarter. Uh, Karis Revert. Uh, Karis Revert, geez. I, my, the longer we pod, Caitlin, the less I'm able to actually use my tongue. Um, Karis runs a pistol action on the on the close side of the court so uh, not the far side uh, i could just say close side uh with tj mcconnell into a uh, a double drag with jakar sampson and miles jakar rolls miles pops karis uh continues around gets doubled yaka purtles and it it's less of a double more yaka purtle is is dropped to contain uh devin vassell goes under to to to, to trail on karis Karis passes the ball back out to Miles, who's at the top, like standing right at, at, right above the break at the top of the key. Um, and uh, Jakob Pertl, uh rotates back to Miles, does not fully close out onto him, but he's like probably three feet off. Um, Devin Vassell is, is kind of locked on to Karis, but watching a little bit off ball. Um, Karis does the typical head fake and go. And Miles hits him with a fantastic pocket pass, just like a lead bounce pass right into the pocket, and Karras gets a layup. Um, it sounds so rudimentary, and, and I know I've said that a million times this pod. I need to I need to expand my lexicon for podcasts. Um, but point being, that is just not something we would have seen from Miles last year. Um, like that's it's it's something that I wrote about early on in the year, like miles feel for the game really improved. He got a lot better at just moving the ball. And there were times where it stuck still. Um, but overall, he just felt a lot more comfortable with the ball in his hands and finding the open man and, and continuing a play instead of getting the ball and kind of freezing up a little bit. Cause that used to be an issue for him. He'd get the ball at the top of the key in that scenario. If, a, if an action got stuck or if uh, if a ball handler needed 
um, needed that extra juice from from a dribble handoff. Like Miles got a lot better at, at that this year. He was not obviously he was not Domas, but like it got to the point where if if Miles is solo center, I don't feel bad about the offense. Like and not like I necessarily felt bad about the offense the year prior, but considering like what Domas brings to the offense, like if you had Miles out there, he could hang for stretches as a solo five, and he could do. Um, I wouldn't say. You know, you, you don't necessarily trust him as a post hub, but point being, like, you can trust him to carry on a play. You can trust him to uh, um, find avenues to to keep a play going. And I, I thought that was just so huge for him because that's a really hard aspect of your game to improve. And I just wasn't sure we were ever going to see that from him. Like, his box score numbers were almost exactly what they have been for his career averages, but he made such meaningful strides as an offensive player this year. Yeah, for me, I felt like his main growth came in the way that um, – and I think the game that they played in Phoenix was a good illustration of this. There was a couple moments in that game where Phoenix did double Sabonis, and he purposely um, put his body in front on the opposite block and sealed to make himself a target to get the ball. And that's where a lot of his involvement, I think, needs to come because – yeah. I mean, you said that they have some overlapping skills. I actually think that they like are completely different in the way that they need to be utilized. I still feel better playing Miles more off of the action than within it. I still think there's a lot of moments where um, if they come out and the play doesn't go off the way that it needs to, that I don't feel super comfortable with him playing out of pocket. But I do feel better about him making reads away from the ball to whether that means, you know, he cuts to draw, you know, basically a cut assist to draw defenders to open up other guys, or he makes himself readily available to get the ball because that wasn't something that showed up a lot in the bubble, but there were moments where I could be like, Hey, I can envision that screenshot in my head where that isn't something that we would have seen from him. And, and I hate using this word, but like a level of aggressiveness of I'm going to find ways to involve myself because they don't run a lot of plays that are four miles and I don't anticipate that that's something that they would do other than, you know, there in the pick and pop, that's a good example, you know, getting the ball and putting it up. I think for the most part where you say there were a few hitches, but I think he was more comfortable whether he was a trailer and having good footwork to step into a three that was better than a year ago. But I mean, some of it for me, like I always get excited if he can make, you know, a pass to a backdoor person or, you know, maybe a high low pass, but it's kind of like the same impression I have when Sabonis gets a block. I go, you know, that was a nice little thing, but I don't know how many more times I'm going to see it. Like, um, I'll just ask you this, like, this is something I had saved later on, but when you're watching the Utah jazz series, like against the Clippers and you're watching the Clippers load up on Donovan Mitchell when, and, and helping one pass away and the jazz are really relying on threes, you know, to me, the best way to counter that would be for the jazz to be calling a lot more backdoor plays, a lot more backdoor sets to be attacking the fact that the Clippers don't have a rim protector out there. And and rather than trying to drive and get into their blender that it seems that they're struggling to get into. And I don't know in that situation, similar with Rudy Gobert, like I think there's a lot of narratives out there that Rudy Gobert's defense is like hurting that series. And I don't agree with that similar to the way I wouldn't agree with it if it was miles, but I don't know that I would feel confident if, you know, I put miles in that situation and was like, Hey, these people are going to, we're going to run drive and kick and there's going to be two options out there and we're going to need to get stuff at the back rim. And and we need a passer out there in order to facilitate that. I don't know that I would feel comfortable there, but I do agree with you that yes, his numbers are the same, 
from a year a year ago but you can you can watch certain aspects of him whether it's you know getting a better screening angle or where he recognizes his spots were at the four where he's definitely better I mean I think it's what I said even with Sabonis and getting you know creating space for himself off of that shot Sabonis isn't hitting that shot but he is demonstrating that he worked on a skill and I think with Miles it's similar to that like he's not always doing all of it super consistently, but you can see that there's, that there's more there, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I would, I just want to go back for a quick second and say, and in terms of talking about um, them having overlapping skills, I meant like they, they kind of, it's difficult for them to, uh, how do I put it? Like they, they obviously don't maintain the same space on the floor, but it's more like, okay, well, if Domas is going to be on the block, Miles has to be on the perimeter. Like there, it's just very right. difficult. Like there are like when they're on the court together, it's just uh, it's clunky. Like that's the best way to put it. Like it, it, on both ends. Like um, so that's what I mean by that. Um, but like, right. like my point talking, was just that like I'm not gonna be in a spot where it'd be like oh I want Sabonis on the perimeter and I want yeah my- yeah exactly 100. Um, percent And that's a great point too. And looking at the Jazz series, like yeah, it's. Um, I don't want him to operate in the same way that Domas is. And I, I don't, there's, there's just no way for that. That's not, that would be asking a lot out of miles. And we saw that in the Miami series last year. Like that was not good for him. That, that was really tough for him. And they asked way too much out of him offensively. And they, even then it, it was a tamped down version of what Domas had been doing. But like, I mean, you brought that awesome stat out about how I think he had the lowest, uh, assist percentage on potential passes or something something like that i can't remember yeah yeah the, of all the people because his touches miles's touches were up and i believe like the low 50 upper 40 area which was way more than he was getting during the regular season and he averaged 0.5 potential assists and some of that was a function of what the surrounding offense was what you just weren't going to do some of those things with him like and i think the best example of how we could compare and contrast these two people and i'm sure like you'll remember this everybody will because we just brought up the awesome block play that miles had against tyler hero he also had the, the you know the key defensive stop in that overtime game i believe he blocked bam and then he blocked Jimmy I don't I don't even remember what it was but it was an incredible play that they're in overtime and Sabonis had fouled out and they start overtime and they try to run two DHO plays with Miles and both of them get blown up and then you know Justin and Brogdon I believe ended up hitting threes out of you know just scrambling around like they they couldn't get into what they needed to do but they managed to still get a win because Miles made key defensive plays at the other end in those situations that's what i'm talking about like you can see in both scenarios of all like oh that was a dh don't and then at the <laughs> other end you can see like yeah Sabonis wouldn't have done that like and, and that's where the trouble in lies like i think that both of these people add so much value to what you do on either end of the floor that it's it's difficult to lift either one of them out yeah yeah exactly and i think it just speaks more to like my overall point with bringing this up and like you fit on too, it's just really, it's really difficult to have two guys who are so different that virtually need to play the same position. Cause even if you're running like a bench unit with miles, then okay. You, you have to run different stuff. You can't operate the same way uh, because it's just hard to get the same value out of miles. And it, same thing with looking at Domas defensively, like you can't run the same stuff with miles out of the game defensively because you're asking way too much out of Domas. And it's just, it's very, uh, it's very difficult. In, in, oh, in one time. other thing yeah. I wanted to add that I did notice that um, another area of growth that I thought Miles made 
in this conversation was that like none of the centers got as much action as the role man as they did a year ago. But when mm. you look at Miles's actual possessions as the role man, like he rolled more this year. Like there was more effort on his part to get he stuff rolled way toward, harder. Yeah. To get stuff toward the basket. Like he rolled on 48% of his role man possessions, which is last year he popped on 65% of them. And uh, Nate McMillan made this comment and it, it, I never fully understood what he meant because he was talking about like, Oh, he's a magnet to there. And I think the interpretation was that Nate McMillan was like balking at him popping to three. And I think Nate McMillan was more saying he's a magnet to popping. And sometimes he would be where he wouldn't quite make the read of the defense of whether he needed to roll or slip or pop. And I, I think he showed better of, you know, like we said, like he was more comfortable going hard toward the basket and catching a pass. Like he's not going to get like, people aren't going to pull over weak side as much against him, but he took advantage of what the defense was giving him and, and was processing that information better. I thought. Yeah. I 100% agree with that. Um, just point being the strides you made offensively were really, uh, really cool this year and, and stuff that wasn't necessarily easy to pick out. Cause he had to work so much within, um, you know, finding small little avenues in the offense because so much stuff wasn't run for him. Um, so going into my number, uh, I really struggled to get it down to one number. Um, I have three numbers in one because I kind of cheated. So my number is 97, um, which I need to change in the IC page. But my, my number is 97. Can you guess what that is? Is that like his percentile as a rim protector? <laughs> it actually Wow. Is it really? I can't believe you picked that out. Um, yeah. So using basketball index has a really great, uh, some really awesome tools in terms of looking at rim protection and just in general, um, in every single rim protection metric miles was 97th percentile or higher. So like the 97th percentile is rim defensive field goal percentage compared to, um, what's considered league average. And miles was the team uh, opponent's, scored uh, i mean had a 13.1 percent lower field goal percentage than expected when miles was defending shots at the rim which is just kind of ridiculous um like the only comparable player really is rudy gobert and clint capella um which just speaks to how impactful he was at the rim he averaged 11.2 rim contests per 75 possessions um that's a lot that's yes. in the 99th percentile. And I believe that is just about the top in the league. Like that is absurd. And of course, four blocks for 75. But point being, I just really want to elaborate. Like, I think a lot of people maybe try and say, oh, well, he just, yeah, he blocks shots. But what else does he do? Like, it's so much more than that. Oh, like, it's more than that. So much more. Um, he's one of the probably three best pick and roll defenders in the league at the big man spot. Um, I actually would argue in some ways he's, he's better at it than Rudy Gobert. Um, he's just so impactful. And the activity level that he brought this year before the hand injury was ridiculous. Um, like it, that, that's what really changed for him. Like his activity with his hands in pick and roll, playing a little bit closer to the level and forcing ball handlers to pick up the ball. I wrote about this earlier in the season too. Like he, he got so good at just making people uncomfortable. Um, and I know a lot gets made out of rebounding and whatnot. I, we've talked about that before. I don't feel the need to hit on that because I think it's just a lazy argument and it doesn't really 
um, lean to any real analysis, in my opinion. Uh, but yeah, his his ability to both protect the rim, protect the paint, and just set a defensive system is uh, it was on full display this year. And it really just was unfortunate that he he missed so much time due yeah. to injury because if, if he didn't, I I mean he probably doesn't end up getting voted for it. But I think he would have been deserving of second team all in all defense, not all NBA. But yeah, he was uh, he was just fantastic defensively this season. Yeah, I mean I I don't think all he does is, is block shots. I mean I think that's the most eye popping thing that he does. But mm-hmm. he's adaptable in his pick and roll coverage. You you feel comfortable at times if you need to bring him higher in blitz um, he's been doing more at the level the last couple of years and and you say that I think his hands were better it wasn't all just you know um, waiting baiting guys and then and getting back to the block shots the amount of volume you said about the rim challenges is interesting because I just looked at the one at nba.com on their tracking data and I believe he was at like nine, just regular per game. Like that's not per minute. And I, I think that's the most that anybody's challenged since that stat started being tracked, which brings up an interesting point. Like that's great for miles, like his intensity to keep challenging. Yeah. I mean, the one when uh, it was on his birthday, which birthday miles is a national treasure. Everyone <laughs> should know this. Um, I don't believe he scored on his birthday against the Pistons, but like, well, you didn't have to say that, but no, no, this is my point. This is my point that I don't believe he scored in that game. And somebody's like, Oh, we're going to have to demote birthday miles. I'm like, no, we aren't because he was putting the lid. Like people weren't able to attempt those shots at the rim because of stuff that he was doing. And there was at one point during the season, which I'll just say it on here because I wanted to write it, but I was like, I can't write this story because it's way too nerdy. And people are going to be like, what the heck is this person doing? And I couldn't find a statistic to back it up. But um, one thing that he does really well, and like you could tell he was so focused on, is he is really good at 2-9-ing. Like, and knowing oh, which yeah. side of the lane to cleanse on to the point where sometimes, and, and that was important when you're playing a zone scheme. Like the team as a whole, like a lot of times I had no clue what they were doing in zone. But you could watch his positioning and see like, I mean, it wasn't even a 2-9. Sometimes it was like a 1.3. He was so vigilant doing it. Um, watch the game against the Lakers in LA you'll see him doing it and it's it's quite entertaining to watch but um just the number of contests though this is where I'm at do you think it's a good thing that he had no. to contest, oh no like no, that many shots per game because I I don't and that's where I go with the awards voting like you know I don't ever want to be a voter for any of this like never give me that burden please but um I think that that the system itself hurt him like, oh yeah, like um, I, it felt like if they had a more quality defense, he would have gotten more respect in that and uh, mm-hmm. that balloting, Definitely. as well as as the injury clearly hurt him because he missed so much time. But because um, I mean, they, I've said this before, and I don't necessarily think it's a product of Miles, but their opponent rim frequency, even in the minutes when he was on the floor, was like one of the worst in the league. Like they're just, and there are, some of that's purposeful that they want to funnel, but more and more, I keep asking myself this question and I genuinely don't know the answer. The more that the NBA gets spread out further and further away from the basket, how much responsibility is on that big and how much responsibility lies with the point of attack defenders, even in drop coverage to be, to be sticking on and where they're, they're, driving those defenders too and that just wasn't here for a lot of the season and some of that's you know i still think that tj warren is probably their best on-ball defender mm-hmm. i think you could see that in, in comparables but um some way somehow they got to get 
they got to get rim deterrence. And that's one thing that the Jazz, for some reason, when you look at their numbers, Rudy Gobert has a lot more anti-gravity than what the Pacers as a whole, like, and I shouldn't say Rudy Gobert, I should say the Jazz, have a lot more anti-gravity than what the Pacers are doing, even though they're playing a heavily drop scheme. Like, they don't even play Rudy as high as the Pacers did with Miles at times. And, and there's so much action is happening in the paint. And like I said, in some of that, you could say, well, that's because, you know, miles is off the court and it's a bonus. And like, yeah, that's certainly a piece of it, but they're just not deterring people from getting into the paint and the rebounding. I agree with you. Like, I don't feel the need to sit here and, and harp about miles rebounding. I mean, he acknowledged in his exit interview that that's an element of his defense that he needs to get better at, but I would quibble and say, I think that the defense at times made him a worse rebounder Mm -hmm. like that if you're expecting miles and domos like if miles is challenging nine to 11 shots per game he's not going to be in position after contesting that to then go get a rebound and you're just expecting these people to do this over and over and over again and they're rebounding like i looked up the numbers and miles and sabonis interestingly enough both of their box outs per game dropped those were both only like two or three per game by comparison to last year where they were closer to to five and then looking for my rebounding stats. Yeah. So last year when I wrote about the rebounding, like mid season, a lot more of it was they couldn't corral long rebounds and, and ones off of missed threes this year, they were 22nd and, and missed shots at the rim. Like, and that's what I'm getting at. Like, I think that a lot of that was a function of the defense. I think in certain respects, uh, miles did get better at, at making contact and, uh, getting a few more contested rebounds I thought than what he looked a year ago like I'm not going to say he's a great rebounder by any stretch of the word and would question how their overall rebounding would handle given what it looked like this year even if you made the system if if he was out there at solo five and you didn't find somebody at the four who could also rebound like I'm going to be honest that would be a concern for me but I think that a lot of what was going on with the rebounding was a function of what the scheme was, and that's true across, you know, most teams, your, your defense very much controls where rebounds are going to be because of what shots you're willing to give up. And they just gave up so much rim frequency, even in spite of everything you said, like all the good things that miles does. And like what I said in the Detroit game, you can see how many times he's getting in there and, and people are passing out of shots. And yet, you know, people are constantly getting two feet in the paint. This defensive scheme almost at a, uh for lack of uh, better analogies, like asking Atlas to hold up the world. Like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's how it felt in a lot yeah, of ways. It was like, Miles was so good, but also like they just put him in terrible positions. Like that's what's so different about looking at the jazz, like their perimeter defenders are, are better than the Pacers, but not by much in my opinion. Like I, I like Royce O'Neal would definitely be the best perimeter defender on the Pacers. Uh, maybe outside TJ Warren. Um, but even then, like they're they're good at like they just play the hell out of the perimeter and force everything inside. Like a lot of teams don't necessarily want to take a, a, a an eighteen foot pull up, you know. So it's they're really good at forcing teams into more uncomfortable shots. And it felt more like the Pacers forced themselves into having to defend shots that the uh, opposing teams are way more comfortable taking. I think would be how I put it. Like the way that they funneled everything to the rim was was just advantageous as hell for other teams um so that's that's how i would look at it in terms of being different i'd I'd have to like dive more into it i mean i watched a lot of utah this year but i think that's just my initial no no that's that's what my take is as well it's just that um 
forgot what I was going to tell you. <laughs> You're good. Anyways, yeah. Um, well, yeah, that goes perfectly into well, not really. This is not quite the same thing. But my o- my over under is eighteen. Can you guess what that is? Eighteen. No. That is usage percentage. Um, oh yeah. Would you? Uh, where would you? Where would you go on that? Because this year. Miles had a 15.2 usage percentage for cleaning glass, which was his lowest uh, in the NBA. He was 16 and a half last year, and his highest was 18.4 in 17-18. Well, I feel like I need a lot more information to be able to answer that. Yeah. I need to know who's who the on next, the team, who what the is, next coach yeah. is, who's on the team. If, if Sabonis isn't there, who did they trade Sabonis for? Uh, what is the goal of the team? Are you rebuilding? Are you, you know, what are you doing? I think generally speaking, we're through two coaches now, and this is mainly how he's been used. I think that that's probably how he is going to be used. And I don't think it's a terrible thing if that's how he's used. Like I said, I think he's better off playing off of the action to a certain degree. Um, I think he can continue growing as he did this year in the ways that we said of, of involving himself around um, what other people are doing with other people making more plays in their making more of the plays with the ball in their hands, whether that means you're doing more with perimeter players and driving kick, or if it's somebody like a Sabonis or another uh, playmaker in that regard, it's just, I don't know that I've necessarily seen enough that would make me warrant thinking that you should readily involve him a lot more. That doesn't mean you don't take advantage of what he does at all. I think it's a fine balance, but um, I think I would just need to see more on that general respect, but I mean, he's mentioned it like even after that game against Detroit, he's like, I didn't score any points, but my impact was felt. And I agree with him. It was like, and he takes pride in playing defense. And if that's what he comes out and does, and he stars in that role, I'm not really all that concerned about it. I am more concerned about it. Like with the article I wrote at the start of the year, if it is Sabonis, it's important that he be able to play off of that and be able to, mm-hmm hit some shots because when you're at the four you get defended differently than when you're at the five like if you're playing off the ball at the four teams are going to be more willing if you're hitting those shots at a higher clip to be taking um or more hesitant to be taking extra steps off of you they might stay closer to the perimeter versus if you're in the five and there's a pop they're going to have to choose to give up something and a lot of times that's what they're going to choose to give up or they they might pre-rotate from the other side or they might be switching it and that's just a whole nother thing like i don't know if you run up against a team which you most likely would in a playoff situation that i would feel super comfortable like oh they're they're in a switching scheme they're switching everything similar to what you know the heat were doing other than when bam was kind of roaming off like that I would want to feed a ton of touches to Miles. I think they could have looked at that more. I think he can turn and face up and hit some of those shots. And there were moments where, like against Trevor Ariza, you know, Bam was guarding Sabonis, Trevor Ariza, the ghost of Trevor Ariza is guarding Miles. They throw the ball to him, and he had a great rip through move and got to the basket. Like he shows flashes of that, but I, that wouldn't be a mainstay of what I'm doing. And I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing if it isn't. Yeah, I agree. Like I think. What he's gotten to do this past year is the most comfortable I've felt with him offensively. Like, um, really putting together his handle and starting to figure that drive game out was a really cool because we'd seen flashes of it the year before. Um, seeing him do it really consistently this year was fun. Um, and just finding, like, again, like I don't, I don't like using the term either, but just being more aggressive or assertive in finding avenues to to score that aren't necessarily self-created you know if you're getting putbacks or you're finding 
uh, lanes to cut. Like, I think that's, that's the thing for him, you know, and maybe there is an avenue where uh, he does get more opportunities to self-create some shots. Um, but I'm pretty okay. Like, I, I don't know if I feel great about, you know, 15% usage. Like I did think there were uh, times where maybe they could have done a slightly better job of finding him opportunities. Like it felt like, uh, I mean, part of it's because he wasn't playing, but you know, getting more of those quick hitter actions uh, to get him a three. Um, I liked those. Like, I, I really want to see more stuff like that. Uh, but part of it too is like miles has to be willing to take those shots. He was a lot better at that this year, but he still passed out of some stuff. But yeah, I agree. Like uh, where he's at now, um, and, and I, I mean, I, I, again, same thing with both guys, like they're 25 years old. Yeah. Exactly. They're not finished products. Like I hate the idea that people bring up like, ah, oh, you know, he just is what he is now. I just don't agree with no. that. Yeah. I agree. Like, I just too. don't agree with that at all. That neither of these guys is, is a finished product. Um, and I think it's a little disingenuous to, to, you know, f- think that either of them are, uh, cause they both made massive strides over the past year. So that would be my closing statement on miles before we get into questions. Yeah, just to add on to that, like, and that's the thing, like I said, with that rip through move against Trevor Reza, like he has moments like that, or he puts the ball on the floor and he might, you know, be a big guy who dribbles it, you know, changes direction off the dribble and gets to the basket off of a closeout and like goes off the wrong foot. Like, and you'll be like, wow, like awaken, like that's, that's <laughs> what we want to see from you. Yeah. But then he'll have games where like that just, you know, completely disappears. Like, you know, even in the Detroit game, like as fantastic he was defensively and I'm not really overall concerned with the scoring, but he had like three catch and go for A's that went like drastically wrong. Like you just need to be able to see him doing more of it. And sometimes I wanted to know like how much of this is connected to you know, where his touches are at. And I looked at the three point percentage and like in March, he shot his best from three and he was averaging 36 touches per game in that month, which was his lowest of any month in the season. Then in April, he didn't play that many games, but he was getting close to 50 touches. And some of that was because Sabonis was out and he was shooting below 30. Like sometimes it's just like, that's what I think it generally goes back to, to with him on the offensive end of the floor being able to can more consistently do the things that, that he could take advantage of, which he was better. I mean, his free throw rate as a whole was, was I think a career low this year, but as you say, whenever he was putting the ball on the floor against the closeout, you know, that's not the same as like, okay, we're going to use you as a ball handler as a pitch at the top. I wouldn't feel comfortable with that, but he did a good job of drawing fouls out of those closeouts, like running his body into people and getting into the line at that. So that was another area that I thought he improved, but, yeah, that's somebody asked that question, which we're going to get into listener questions, but we both kind of answered it. Like, mm-hmm. do you think Miles has hit his ceiling? Like, I'm not ready to say that. They're, I'm not ready to say that with either one of them. They're both young and they do things at certain times where it's like, that is new. It's just a matter of doing that new thing more and more efficiently. So yeah. I don't think either one of them are completely finished products and it would depend on, you know, what this new system is, but we'll head into all of the wonderful questions that everyone asked us. And I will just kick this off by saying, like, I don't know how you feel, but I don't work in the front office. I don't know what trades are out there. I don't know what direction they feel like going in. I do think that Kevin Pritchard has somewhat um, earned the benefit of the doubt in these conversations with trades that he has made. So I would probably trust him in this situation, but we're not going to go into any of that in this conversation about, you know, 
which one of them should they trade or which one of them, you know, is doing this, that, or the other. Like, this is just about who they individually are as players. And I just more want to keep it there. And lots of people ask some really good questions. So um, the first one is, Wait, so are you saying you're not a shadow GM? No, I'm not. I'm not. Wow, I don't have any of their numbers. Wild. And thank goodness I don't, because none <laughs> of them need any of my input as probably yeah. most people are thinking throughout this podcast. But I mean, this one we kind of answered, but this comes from one of our regular listeners, Jeff Hasser. Um, Domas started taking more threes this year, but ultimately does the ability for either Sabonis Turner or even Goga to hit threes consistently actually unlock a more feasible system for them to play together? Ooh, that's a good question. I like that question. Yeah. Um, I think we've hit it on it a little bit, but I'll, if you don't mind me starting off, I think no, I'll add, um, I've written a little bit on this this year, not not at Indy Cornrows, but more at uh, some some freelance work I was doing. Um, I think, I don't want to say that the three is um, less valuable than consensus. It's just more, I think the way that we have to talk about it is different. I, I value more like what Miles was doing in terms of catching and going, Part of that is because he is a, I mean, he's a, a capable floor spacer. So teams will guard him that way. Not always, but um, the ability to drive to the basket and put teams in rotation in some ways means a little bit more than just hitting an open three, like hitting the three is good. Threes are good. Um, but I, I think having the ability to get to the rim or to just open things up by getting two feet in the paint means a little bit more to me. And like we've talked about with Sabonis, it's less about the three. Um, but I guess I would answer like, yeah, if Miles is hitting, like say he's shooting 37% on five or six threes per game next year, I don't know if that means that teams are going to meaningfully guard him differently, but it is, I mean, that's good. That is a good thing. If if he's hitting 37% from three on five or six attempts and he's playing at the four, I think it's going to meaningfully change how people guard him. I, I, I don't think that you're going to take a bunch of extra steps off of him in the corner. And I'm not saying that they necessarily are now, but if you get into that situation and that's what he's able to shoot off of other people's gravity, I don't think people are going to take extra steps of him off at the four spot. Now, <clears throat> would you say that like, I mean, you talk about driving into rotation if somebody isn't respecting that and you're driving into that space, would you feel good about him doing that? No, like, no, probably see, I not. don't think I really would either, which is where, but if people are coming out and doing that and he's shown that he can put the ball on the floor as he has in cases this year, then I feel better about it. I mean, my overall take is um, it would be if, if any of them could do that, you would be, you would be getting free points. Like, I mean, a lot of the shots, like I said, with what we started off with, with the Goga, because of what that play construction was, he's not being guarded. So you're, you're getting an open shot for three and getting open shots that you can hit, especially that are worth more points is a good thing. So um, it would in a sense, but then you'd have to take the defensive component into it. Like, yeah. and in, and in the same respect of like any of the three of them, would they be better at shooting the three than what a replacement person could do in that role? If, if you did trade one of them, I can't say that because I don't feel good about any of them shooting off of like Goga. I should have mentioned earlier. I will say this for him. His understanding of spacing got a lot better this year that if somebody dribbled into the paint, he knew how to replace into that, to that area and, and move. But like, I don't feel good about any of them lifting up from, a specific spot and shooting off of motion or, or mm-hmm. going into a dribble handoff and shooting. So it's not going to change anything in that respect. And then defensively, you have to ask, like, you know, even if they can, do you feel good enough about Sabonis defending at the four or Goga or whoever it's going to be defending about the four 
with that. But I think that there, there is certain respects that if they were hitting the three consistently, it would change things. I mean, just like in the article I started at the beginning of the year, if you're establishing miles as more of a trailer and I'm with you, I think in certain spots, they could have looked for that more. And he hits some of those mentally, you as a defender are going to remember that. And you're, yeah. you might in transition the next time want to stay higher up the floor because he did that. So I think that there is an aspect of it there. So, um, I don't think it's ever a bad thing for anybody to hit the three better. I just think, and they would be more complete. It's just the answer for each one of them is a little bit different and depending upon which position they're playing. Like my opinion on that with miles might change a little bit differently too. If he was at solo five, I think for Sabonis, there's just other things that I think he should improve at that would actually meaningfully change the defense more for him at the five than, than at the three. But that was the first question. Um, the next one, another longtime listener and person who interacts on Twitter is Craig Lindemann. He says, who would be the ideal four to play next to each of them? And you don't have to name like a player, but just like what skills would you be looking for if, if there were to be a change there? Yeah. I mean, that's, I don't want to say it's simple, but in some ways, yeah. I mean, look at what, okay. What do they struggle with together when they play a five out team, getting out to the perimeter and defending their, and getting put into rotation can be really tough for them because I mean it's just hard for a guy who's six eleven to seven feet tall to to get out to the perimeter consistently. So I look at somebody who is mobile enough to play diverse pick and roll coverages is not necessarily. Well, I mean, I of course is not a big like you don't want to play another big next to a big because it's just hard to do that right now. Um, can space the floor, can handle the ball, can pass. Um, and can play good defense, or I should at least say credible defense on, on the perimeter while uh, being able to make backline rotations still. Um, so I think I don't, I don't necessarily have, like, I guess I have players in mind, but I don't really want to bring anybody up. But that's in my mind, like, you, it, it's really tough to be a four in the NBA because you have to, like, I think you, you think of the ideal four and that's like fitting, like the the, four, the ideal four is somebody who can play like six different roles on a team, and that's just a tough player to find. And I think that's why the Pacers have um, been playing two bigs because it's a that's those are the players that they have, but b it's hard to find that player. Absolutely, and this is the thing: like finding this silver bullet answer. I'm not sure how you're going to acquire that. And when I sit down and make lists, what's funny is like I'll make a list for Miles, and I'll be like, mm, I'm kind of describing some bonus. And I'll make a list for Sabonis. I'm like, mm, I'm kind of describing Miles. Like a lot of the attributes, like if if I'm going with Miles and I want a four and knowing what the rest of the roster is now and how some of the defense looked in the bubble with things they did against TJ Warren, I'm, I'm going to want another person who can make plays at, at the four spot, be able to do stuff. Um, somebody, and this is something that goes back to even like, before Thad did some of the stuff that he did with Chicago, I think I would want the four, which goes back to the prior question. I would want the four to be a respectable shooter in a way that Sabonis wouldn't be at the four, which obviously isn't something you would do, but um, so that miles can get more of, of the defensive assignment against the actual five, because if he's at the five and that's a wide open shot, then you're taking advantage of that there. Whereas a lot of times when he played with Thad, Thad would be like drawing Joel Embiid instead of Miles because Joel Embiid's not going to go out and guard on the perimeter. And I don't think that was always super helpful. I mean, somebody, again, kind of like Thad that you could throw and defend, like maybe you could put Miles on a different player in certain situations against a dominant post player and let that guy maybe take some reps. 
and could also come in and, and rebound from the four spot and just let Miles, you know, play off more of the action. But then if he is in the pick and pop, he is going to be drawing a lumbering rim protector. Like that's what I would be looking for in the archetype. And as you say, a defender who can defend credibly out on the perimeter and make his job easier. So he's not being um, quite as overburdened. Now on the Sabonis side, you know, I would want a weak side rim protector with a lot of mobility who I could put into four or five pick and roll and be doing a lot more things with dribble handoffs with that would put opposing fours and fives into tougher positions than what they're able to currently do with miles. Um, somebody that can uh, drive closeouts and make passes out of those closeouts would be good. And somebody who can just defend his own position, like at the four spot so that Sabonis isn't having to uh, deal with some of that, but I don't really want Sabonis anymore to have to be defending at the four and to be away from the glass and that would make it so he would be getting like soft traps. Like it's good for him to get doubled, but I don't really want teams soft trapping him where he can't get the passing angles. So the person would would need to be somebody who if Sabonis is getting soft covered would be able to take advantage of what that spacing is. Like they would need to be, um, have a good feel for how to operate in that space. So I don't think that one person, like you can just acquire one and they're going to fit both of them. Cause I think that there there's different visions for each of them of what you would do. And the, like I said, the weird thing is, is that a lot of the things I just said, I described the opposite player. So <laughs> yeah, it's kind there's of weird. that. Um, and I mean, that just brings up more of it too. It's like, well, maybe the, I don't like the, I still think like they're, they're at a place where they do need to look at, at making a change just given the way things have done. We've talked about it, but point being like, is this the guy you get going to be that much better or, or that much more impactful or even will they be more impactful than, than the player that you're trading out? I don't know. Um, that's why we're not in the front office because that is hard stuff to um, kind of counter with. Um, I have a question I'd like to bring up. Uh, from Mikhail Mukin. Mukin? I'm, okay. I'm, I apologize if I butchered that name. I'd like to. I'd love to hear more about Goga. Areas to improve, possible fit with Domas or Miles. Um, we'll get to the last question after, uh, or the last part of that question after. But um, I just appreciate this because we yeah. don't talk about Goga enough. What do you think about Goga's areas to improve? Like, what do you want to see the most from Goga next year? I mean, a lot of things. Like he said, I, I mean, I think I touched on it before that. I think his screening is a big piece of it, not only for what it impacts for the people getting to the basket, but um, spatially in certain spots when he's setting like off staggers to actually make contact there and have that stick, but also the distance that he's setting some of the picks away, I think is something that he needs to work on. But I want to see more out of his screen and roll game. I want to see what he can do when he releases from that pick, because sometimes I think that he brings the ball down too low a lot of the time when he's yeah. on the screen and roll and then makes it easier for people to contest him. So being more fluid in the pick and roll, keeping the ball high. Um, he didn't finish real well off of hook shots this year. So that's something that he could look at. Uh, and then just like what we said with the three point shot, he's got to get that. I think he still needs to nail that down because I think that's where he also could add some value in terms of just hitting shots that are going to be open. 
but it's funny because he's kind of a diluted version of both of them in certain respects. Like, yeah. I don't think, I don't think he's the shot blocker that miles is. And he has a ways to go in terms of his backline communication as well. Cause there's a few games this year where you could see that, like he thought that they were going to drop and the, the guard thought they were icing the side pick and roll. And it's like, you know, go, go, you gotta, you gotta communicate that one. But, um, and then on Sabonis side, like what I said earlier, I think he got better in handoff situations, making, uh, creating spacing with contact in the handoffs and with the get actions. It's just that, you know, he's not, and I don't think he should be he's still really young. He's not at the level of either one of them, but he kind of has some of both of their skill sets in certain respects. But to answer the second part of it, like I don't really want to talk about his fit with either one of them because if you move one of them, I don't really want to be playing two centers anymore. Yeah. Same. Like I want to go to him being the backup center. And then in specific instances, like what they did in the late season win over the Sixers when Joel Embiid was out, they played Sabonis and Goga to close that game. And I thought it made sense based on how the Sixers were attacking and to just to have more size in the paint with Ben Simmons and, and, what else was out there and how they were defending up top. Like I'm not, I'm fine doing that in spots if it fits up matchup wise, which I think goes back clear to the start of the season when you and I were talking about like the comparisons that were being made about Gasol and Ibaka in Toronto. Like that was something that the Raptors barely did. They mm-hmm. did it against the Sixers in a playoff series because it made sense to do it with Tobias Harris struggling as much as he was from deep and with having uh and guarding Joel and Bede and how they were defending. Like that wasn't something that they did regularly. Those two barely played together in the playoffs. So if I'm if I'm to the space where I feel like these two centers, the starters, meaning Miles and Sabonis, can't fit anymore and I'm gonna move one of them, I don't really want him playing big minutes with either one, but I mean I think he could. I think you could in spots if it made sense from a matchup perspective. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I I don't really want to see that either. I just don't like it because then you're just creating the same problem with a different player. Like, like. I mean, I think it would be much clearer because I think that the person, whether it was Miles or Sabonis playing in front of him, there would be a very clear pecking order there. Yeah, they, yeah. There's they that, are the better just, player. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it would just be. I'm I'm not entirely sure. It's it's uh, I, I I'm, I sorry. I told I totally just blanked on that. No, that's fine. Um, somebody did ask, do you think there's room for Turner to grow as a player? Is he maxed out now? That was Mackenzie Holmes Stan account. And I just want to say like, we did answer that one. So I wanted to acknowledge that that was something that they had asked. Um, a lot of people have asked, which one should they keep? <laughs> uh, I'll get back to you on that once I've heard back from all of the GMs in, in the NBA. Cause I mean, they're really waiting to to call me um somebody said what's the, if you do keep both of them what do you think the ideal defensive scheme is i'm looking for who asked that so i can give credit but go ahead and start Ooh. talking that if you keep both of them the ideal defensive scheme yes um it's again sounds uh sounds very basic but uh just hire dan burke back and uh run that stuff again no i mean anything but this year uh finding a real <laughs> uh, Finding a real base is important. Like that, that was something that I really struggled with this year. Like it just never felt like they established a base. Um, and like, I, I, I remember I had Steve Jones, who's Steve Jones Jr. On the pod. who's absolutely fantastic. And we talked about that. Like the Pacers never felt like they were so multiple. They felt like uh, I'm trying to think of, the, there's like a movie where this guy, uh, 
or, or like this is a terrible analogy. Caitlin, you have to stop me whenever I try and go into an analogy. Um, but like think of it in terms of somebody who's like time traveling and they can't stop shifting between time shifts or whatever. Um, that's how it felt with the defense. Like you never knew where they were at. Like, oh, maybe I'm in 1800 this 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 stop. Oh, wait, now I'm back in ancient Rome for this possession. Like, what's going on? Where are we? It just never felt like they were grounded in anything. And that's something I really hope that they can find next year. And, um, you know, a lot of people would point out how much that that defensive system struggled in the postseason. And that's fair. But I think that's a little bit more about the roster than necessarily the defensive system and the way that they were playing. Which uh, defensive system struggled in the postseason? Oh, um, sorry, I did not mean I did not mean the Pacers. I mean like talking about like the Bucks, like looking at the way the Bucks play. Oh, that's because I know like people are like when they talk about Mike Budenholzer, and I, I we have we don't even have to talk about that one. There are definitely things to talk about with him, but like, I sorry, I I, bo- I botched that. I meant in terms of looking at teams that have like a really good base. Oh, okay, system I see. In the in the in the regular season, um, like you want to be multiple in in the playoffs and be able to have versatility, but like you have to have a really good base and finding that first. So that's not a very good answer for me. How would you answer? Well, yeah, I mean, I know I, I totally get what you're saying now, but uh, yeah, I mean, at the back end of the season, they tried to simplify it and it was just too little too late. Like, you know, we're going to strip out some of these other things and get back to basics. And at times it still looked okay, but you know, they just never seemed settled in what their coverages were. Like I said before, like, you know, they played a lot of drop or at the level under Dan Burke. And now this year they, at times when they would go to it, like we can talk about things being hyper-aggressive. It was hyper-aggressive, but then when they relaxed it, it didn't look like they were fully there either. And the one thing that I will say, like what we were saying about overburdening miles and just expecting him to clean up everybody's mistakes. Like that is literally what it looked like at times. Like we can talk about, Oh, you know, people can be more aggressive when he's out there and be pressing up on the three point line. I'm like, yeah, that happens sometimes, but a lot of times it was like, well, we got that guy back behind us to fix this. So I don't really have to be up doing my role fully because you know, he's going to come to the rescue. Like that's how it looked at times for me. So I think that there needs to be more accountability out there that like, yeah, miles does incredible things, but you need to do your part too. And more of it, in general, like I've said, they need to find ways to get more anti-gravity and it would be very, if we're talking about both of them, I would say, yeah, then yeah, go get Dan Burke back because the defense was working with both of them on the floor a year ago, shrinking the radiuses of some of what they were doing and, and not being as out of control when they were closing out and being more uh, prudent and who they were hard closing out as because we can talk about going overboard with overs against Russell Westbrook. Another big part of that is why were they closing out so hard against the guy? Like, why are you running with flyby closeouts against Russell Westbrook and allowing him to drive into space? You want to play him as a shooter. So I felt like under Dan Burke, they were more specific with that than what they were this year. But um, I, I would say I would like a little bit more of a happy middle because I mean, I wrote articles, I need to cop to it that, uh, I didn't always think the Dan Burke system was proactive enough. Um, Like with miles and the, and the double teams against Joel Embiid, like, you know, that's a matchup he struggles against. And so why not come out from the start of the game? And instead of letting miles feel his way through it and having him get into early foul trouble where you're not benefiting anymore from all the great things he does on defense, um, protect that and get better. in some of your rotations out of that, I mean, that's something much worse this year. They were very bad at defending the post and rotating out of the post this year. I think they finished still dead last so I think that satisfies that question. I have a, um, I have a quick question for you off that. 
Uh, do you think that the Indiana Pacers or the New York Knicks had better defensive personnel on their roster this year? I mean, I think the New York Knicks had a lot better accountability on their roster this yeah, year. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's my point that I would bring up. Is it like as much as this team is imperfect in terms of the way that they're constructed and they don't have awesome point of attack defense, like there are ways that they could still be constructive defensively because as good as the Knicks defense was, that was very much so of some of their parts than, and not to just belittle it. Like they have some really good individual players. Like Nerlens Noel was fantastic. Mitchell Robinson's a really good rim protector. Julius Randle stepped up. RJ Barrett would be the best perimeter defender on this team. Um, but point being like, if you like when you have that actual buy-in and you have guys that are able to play together and and communicate, then it's possible to have a really good defensive system. And I think that's what the biggest thing was this year. It's just, that would be my answer. Having actual accountability and, uh, and liking each other or or playing, playing well together would be a, a good way to put it. But. I mean, this one's kind of a sneaky way around my stipulations that I gave people, but I mean, I think we can kind of answer it generally and where the NBA is at and some of the stuff that's happened in the playoffs. This is the last one, I think, because mm-hmm. there was a lot of overlap. Um, should the focus at the five lean toward offense or defense? This is from BS Express. Who? Um, that's a good question. How do you lean on that one? Well, I mean... I, like when we did, you know, our tremendous rose ceremony on the podcast, a lot of times when I watch the playoffs, I watch them through the lens of, you know, modeling things for the Pacers or what they can do. And and you look, um, I think mainly, you know, I think the idealized versions of Sabonis and Miles, it's not perfect. These other people, you know, are paid much more than Miles and Sabonis for reasons because they have more skills in certain areas. But I mean, I think, Sabonis has the chalk outline of Jokic and Miles has a chalk outline similar to Rudy Gobert. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. So I look at the Jazz series and it's like what I brought up earlier. When you're watching the Clippers are not playing a center. I mean, Nicholas Batum is out there at center. The Nets have gone away from centers. There's times when I watch Atlanta and I'm like, I think they could be getting by with less minutes of Clint Capella at times. And there's certainly times where I think the Bucks could be getting by with less minutes of Brooke Lopez and some of the ways they're using him. So some of it feels a little bit moot. But when I watch the Jazz and see the way that the Clippers are covering him, I'm then like, you know, if that was Jokic and Jamal Murray, like imagine that Jamal Murray was getting covered the way that Donovan Mitchell is. I think that Jokic would be carving up the way that they're helping off one pass away and that Michael Malone would be calling back door plays and that you would still be getting into stuff instead of taking like 60% of their shots from the three point line, which is great when they're hitting them at a huge clip, but not so great later, but also there needs to be greater context because Donovan Mitchell's dealing with an ankle injury. Mike Conley isn't there. If you could throw it to Mike Conley out of some of those situations and he could get into the defense and attack, then the jazz might be looking a lot differently. But on the flip side of that, I watched the Nuggets against the Phoenix Suns. And again, a lot more context is needed. Faku and Austin Rivers were defending at the point of attack. Yikes. You don't have Jamal Murray. You don't have P.J. Dozier. But Jokic did struggle in the coverages against Chris Paul and and Devin Booker. Like, I mean, I I did a jokey tweet from my lifelong fandom of all the teams. Hmm. And in the one game that Jokic played against the Suns, because Monty Williams is so good at packing so many actions into every possession – Jokic logged more distance on defense than he had in any game 
against the Blazers because he was coming up and, and you wouldn't really necessarily do this with Sabonis, but Jokic was blitzing on a lot of the ones with Devin Booker and he's having to do a lot defensively. And then at the other end, because you don't have Jamal Murray to offset some of the offensive needs. And a lot of the guys out there weren't really hitting shots. Aaron Gordon looked like, you know, he had shriveled up quite a bit from what you would hope from him. If he was more in like a fifth man role, He's having to carry so much burden offensively that I think that impacted his defensive effort at the other end. So it's not perfect to judge that on either sense, but I just feel like the league as a whole is trending more towards being able to score. And I think that defense is important in the playoffs, but for the Pacers, it's weird because like, I don't think that right now Sabonis or Miles is on the level clearly of those two players, especially the one yeah. that was just named league MVP. So then I go back to it and I, I, I mean, I said to the, this to you privately beforehand, I don't know that I'm necessarily completely sold on either model, including the one where they're both still on the team. And that doesn't mean that I don't think that they have value or that you should be on the phones trying to move them. I can just see from those two series, like if Sabonis wasn't there, against you know the Clippers and that was Miles operating it like at least right now Rudy Gobert is getting offensive rebounds some in order to punish some of what the Clippers are doing defensively I don't know that that's a huge strength of Miles isn't at the other end I can see like yeah if that was Sabonis and Jokic's role he would probably be struggling defensively in some of that so with whichever way they go and this goes back to some of the coaching candidate stuff I think they need to have that vision for the team and then really find the coach that's going to maximize it because you're not going to run this defensive system with Sabonis and you would need to find other things that you can do I don't think you can just constantly be running drive and kick if it's miles that that's not something that I think that this roster because let's face it like Karis LeVert and I think still has room to grow. And I think that the next coach can unlock stuff from him. I really like Brogdon, but it's not like that's Devin Booker and Chris Paul either. So I don't think you can rely on them just to be creating everything and scoring and that type of a sense. So I think there is benefit to having offensive variety. I mean, I know that a lot of people want to cut out the post-ups or the elbow actions. I strongly disagree with that. I think if you're running a more limited diluted playbook, even if it's not predictable all the time as driving kick isn't, there's ways that teams will find as Tyloo and the Clippers have to, to grind that up. But, you know, my overall general take is two, twofold. Um, like what I said about the nets. I mean, the Clippers are now on the brink. We'll see the jazz Quinn Snyder might find a counter for some of what they're doing. Maybe Paul George doesn't score 37 points, but you know, they're a win away from the Western conference finals. The nets as injured as they are, aren't leaning heavily on centers right now. So you got to gauge somewhat of what the importance is there. And then also just whichever way they go, I think that Kevin Pritchard's earned the benefit of the doubt in this situation to make a good decision and to find a good deal. I mean, he's done very well in trades. So I think I feel pretty good about whatever decision he arrives at. I agree fully with that. And I think my takeaway is what I would say. Um, it's all about what can you lean into being the best at like, um, and maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but like, if uh, if you think you can be an elite defense, okay, what are you doing to get there? Um, if you think you you want to be an elite offense, so you can get there with Sabonis. How are you putting people around him to make that happen? Uh, because I think that's that's just the the thing that I look at. Like, all right, well, if you're making changes to the roster to try and get that 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 level you want to get to, what changes are you making to make it happen? Because like I totally agree with what you're saying. Uh, Miles is not Rudy Gobert. And again, that's not a slight of miles. I think it's more just because Rudy can 
his gravity sets up a lot more offensively. Um, and with Domas, I mean, he's not Nikola Jokic. That's just yeah. being completely real. Like, Domas is awesome. Nikola Jokic is the MVP. There's yeah. a difference. Um, and I think that's that's just – that's reality. Um, so, what, like, all right, does th- bringing some uh, – like, maybe if whatever trade happens, if you bring in another wing or a forward or, or maybe you're playing a three-guard lineup, um, does that – get you to a level of, of competition on offense that makes you feel good enough to be a contender. I, I don't know. Like that's, that's the kind of question that the front office really has to look at and, uh, and, and look into this, this off season. And this is the general point. Like we can't answer you and I cannot answer these questions because we don't know what available options are out there or to fully assess, you know, how much has the offensive explosion in the league impacted what this team can be defensively? Because I give a lot of respect to Dan Burke, and obviously the Sixers defensively have done good things. I mean, they have people in the defensive player of the year conversation with Dan Burke there. They have good defensive personnel, but maybe we look at this a little bit different, even if Dan Burke's still here with two centers on the floor, given what some of the way that offense has evolved over the last year and some of the shot making. So I think that's another piece of it too. But I think my general long answer to most of these questions is, is I don't know. And probably most of you shouldn't listen to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's wrong. Um, I think I don't know either, but I think you should listen to Caitlin. Um, She has a lot of great stuff to say and great insight. And I think our biggest takeaway is just, it's all about context. There really isn't any, definitive thing that that we could answer like so much is up in the air for any given thing because you just have to know everything else going on around it otherwise it's really hard to answer um but i think that's a really good place to leave off i really appreciate everyone uh who who sent in questions everyone who listens and keeps up with us caitlin do you have anything else you want to add before we get out of here no just that um Mark's been doing like his great piece from his draft profile. I'm doing coaching profiles. They take me a little bit longer, but I hope that the wait is worth it when you get to it, because I spend a lot of time shifting, sifting through as much as I can to give hopefully a complete picture. So we're going to keep coming with content for as long as, you know, the Pacers continue to make decisions on all these things as we head into the draft and the off season. Yes. Which, and thanks uh, for listening to this series for everyone that listened to the five episodes of this. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it wasn't too rambly for you and that you were able to follow along with the things we were describing. It was a, it was a great time and I appreciate you doing it, Caitlin. It's always a pleasure to so everyone listening. Thank you for listening. And most importantly, just have a good rest of your day.